Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. It's good to see everybody. Thank you for being here at church today. Actually, you know what? Can you guys stand up again real quick? I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just joking around. Some people are like, really? Again? We've been standing for like 20 minutes. Um, yeah, no, we are not standing. Uh, <laughs> it is funny because some people almost stood up again, uh, and it's, it's like, I don't know, just because I have a mic and I'm standing on a stage, it's like, well, I guess we do what he says, right? Um, it, it's kind of where I want to lead off today. It's so funny how our world views power, Right? Like just that, like if you're, if you're somebody, I've seen videos of this where people have done pranks and stuff uh, out in public. If you have a stage and a microphone, people are like, okay, guess what? let's listen to this guy. Let's like listen to, what, listen to what they're saying. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's kind of a way of people having power in our world. Our world has a funny way of looking at power. Our world also has a funny way of looking at uh, things like prestige, has a funny way of looking at things like prestige. There's an art exhibit happening right now in Miami, Florida. It's called Art Basel. Uh, It's a huge exhibition that happens down in Florida. And one of the art installations there, kid you not, I just saw this on Twitter the other day, one of the art installations is an ATM machine, which it's like, okay, it's an ATM. It's a functioning ATM machine, but here's the twist on it. It has a, a, a pretty decent sized monitor just above it, and so whenever you go up, you stick your card in, like it'll give you money out, but whenever you stick your card in, it takes a snapshot of you, so it takes a picture of you, displays it up on the monitor, and next to you, it displays your account balance. <laughs> Yikes, right? Um, so it, it displays your picture with your account balance, and it like, starts to curate a leaderboard of who has the highest account balance, and it goes from the top to the bottom. And it's funny, you don't even need to see the account balance, you know generally speaking, how much money is in people's account just by their picture. Like the top dude, kid you not, the top person has 2.3 million in their checking account. I've already got a fundraising letter sent to him. I don't know who it is, but I'm like, hey, we're looking to add onto our building. Can you help us out? So that's, that's the top person in his picture. He's all like, like cheesing. Like he's just like, yeah, I got 2.3 million in my account. And then as you go down, the person with like $72 in their account, they're just, <laughs> like you can tell, yeah, they, they don't got a lot in the account right now. Um, but one of the crazy things, and I can guarantee you this is what's gonna happen. So last time I checked it, that was the leader, right? 2.3 million, that's nuts. But there's people with way more money than that. And I guarantee you people are going to be, who, who aren't even around Miami, are going to be going to this exhibit, sticking their debit card in because they have a lot of money and they wanna be on that leaderboard. They want the prestige of look at me, look at how well I'm doing, look at the number that I can put up. Our world has a twisted, silly idea of what prestige looks like. And our world, not just power and not just prestige, but authority. Our world has a funny idea of what can grant someone authority or give someone authority. Back in 2009, when LeBron James was with the Cavs during his first stint, he had won the MVP, and he was accepting his MVP award at Akron St. Vincent St. Mary at his high school. Um, and so it's, it's real, if you know where it is, it's real close to downtown Akron. So my brother, Zach, at this time in 2009, he worked, it's now the Huntington Tower, downtown Akron. It used to be the First Merit Tower before they were bought out. He worked there. He worked there uh, at First Merit. And so 
He's there. He realizes, oh, LeBron's having his ceremony today. I have work today. That's like two, three minutes away. I wonder if I can like take my lunch break and just go over there. Like that would be awesome to just even see them like walking in. That would be really cool because he's like, obviously I'm not gonna be able to get in to an MVP ceremony. You don't even get tickets to this thing. It's like, if you're invited, you go. That's how you get in. So he on his lunch, he leaves and he goes over there and he's at St. V and he starts to notice you know, security isn't super tight here. Wonder if I could sneak in. So he does. <laughs> he, he takes off, he takes off his vest. That's like the first merit vest. He takes that off. And so all he has is a white button up and a pair of khakis. But let me tell you, there's power in khakis because no one questioned a thing. He was able to slip under, the, uh, slip under one of the gates, just walk through, he, how we even found out this was happening, my family got a, a group text message and it's just a picture. Picture with the captain says, guess where I am? And it's a picture of the NBA's most valuable player trophy here and he's here taking a picture of it and then taking another one like, eh, all like, you know, looking crazy with it. And he sends it to us like, what in the, how? How did you, how did you get it? He's like, khakis. Khakis gave me the confidence. Like instantly, I felt like I belonged here and people looked at me and were like, yeah, he belongs here. He's got some khakis on. Like he looks official. It looks like he has the authority to be here. It's silly, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's laughable what our world tells us power looks like, what prestige looks like, what authority looks like. But not only is it laughable, uh, it also can be intoxicating even to people who are followers of Jesus, like if you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, the world's view of power, of prestige, and of authority can be something that even we fall into, that even we get mixed up in. Let me give you some examples throughout history. Um, so Jesus lives, uh, uh, he lives, dies, rises again. That's all around like 30 AD. Then Christianity starts taking off and it starts growing. And by around 300s AD, Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire of Rome, which is crazy. Think about that. The very empire that tried to snuff uh, this movement out is now adopting it as its main religion. But something crazy starts to happen in the years after Christianity becomes the official religion of Rome. We start to see in history, you can look this up, you'll start to see artwork, frescoes on walls and on ceilings of Jesus, but he's dressed in the Caesar's robe and in a Caesar's garb, like the, the ruler of Rome. He's dressed in his garb and he's carrying a sword and a spear and he's getting ready to wage war on pagan nations. Completely opposite of what we saw from Jesus in his life. Like completely opposite of his mission, this, this, this mission of self-sacrifice, of no, turning the other cheek, of I, I will not raise a hand. Do to me what you want to, but I'm not going to raise a hand. It's completely opposite of that, but we already see Christians, right, followers of Jesus, taking him, perverting his image, and using it in league with the power systems of the world. It's crazy, right? And that's Christians who were doing it. Let us move forward to not so far uh, in, uh, back from our history, Nazi Germany. So Nazi Germany, obviously, we know the horrific things that took place in Nazi Germany, the extermination, Kristallnacht, the, the, the terrible things that happened during this time. They did a study about five years in to Nazi Germany because, again, you look at this and you go, something like this can only exist in a place where the gospel of Jesus is absent. 
Like, you, you cannot have this kind of, of just degradation, this kind of uh, awful ideology exist in the same place as the gospel. It just can't. But they did studies. 94% of Nazi Germany, 94% of people polled were professing Christians. 50% Catholic, 44% Protestant. That's mind-blowing. But guess what Nazi Germany promised and what they were trying to deliver on? Prestige, power. Like we're, we're gonna be back on the world stage because what had happened to Germany after World War I, they were completely uh, uh, you know, decimated from the war. They were uh, taxed in huge ways by the world for what they did in World War I. And so their country had completely fallen down. And then this party led by Adolf Hitler comes into power and claims, you know what, what we're gonna do, we're gonna bring prestige back to Germany. We're, we're gonna make Germany where it's supposed to be and so people, except for very, very small minorities, go along with it, right? Christians in league with the powers of the world. And then uh, authority, how, how Christians have gotten mixed up with that, with the idea of, well, this is what authority is supposed to look like, and we have the authority, and we're, we're pursuing authority. Uh, that's how we got the Inquisitions, right? You name the country, there was an Inquisition, uh, a group of Christian leaders seeking out other Christians who may have not fallen in line with Orthodox Christian teaching. They're seeking these people out and literally burning them at the stake, having people killed and murdered because they don't believe the right thing. Like this is in our own history. Christians falling into the power systems and the way that the world works. So we see over and over again in history, people say, Jesus is Lord with their lips, but then with their lives say, Herod is Lord, Augustus is Lord. The power systems of this world, they get you what you want. The power systems of this world, the way the world works, that's how we're going to work. And you know what? It's actually not even that far in history. Like I know a lot of you may be thinking, well, yeah, that's bad, but like I wasn't in Nazi Germany. <laughs> like I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have done that. And I wasn't part of the Roman Empire when all this stuff was going on. And I, I wouldn't do these things. I wasn't part of the Inquisition. I don't work like that. But even today, even today, it is so easy for us to make decisions and to pursue things based off of worldly worldviews and worldly ways of thinking rather than kingdom of God ways of thinking. Think about it. If you get ready to move to a new location, a new city, a new place, probably if you're making a list on why you're moving, the top things are like you're looking for a job, you're looking for better economic situation, you're looking for a more Instagrammable place to live. Like, I wanna be able to post this and make people feel like, ooh, look at where they live, right? Like, you're looking for those things. You're, you're looking for all the, all the nice, shiny things, better economy, better jobs, better whatever, better schools. How far down on the list, if you're being honest with yourself, does a good church fall? Or like making sure, like, okay, well, wherever I move, it is literally a non-negotiable that we're gonna be around influences who push us to be more like Jesus. Like how far down on the list is that? If it's pretty far down, that is us using worldly thinking, worldly worldviews of processing things, worldly mindsets, rather than kingdom of God mindsets. It's something we fall into today and now, and we've got to fight back against it because that's not how things are supposed to be, especially for followers of Jesus. Last week, we talked about this idea, and it's the idea that we're looking at through this entire series, that Christmas changes everything. Can you say it with me? Christmas changes everything. 
it, it's, it's completely changed the game. Christmas has changed everything. Uh, the first Christmas, the first account we see, this is where the kingdom of God first starts to break out into the world. This new reality, the kingdom of God, that's what it is. It's whenever scripture talks about the kingdom of God, it's not necessarily talking about heaven, where we go one day. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that Jesus has ushered in through his life that is all about self-sacrifice and following the way of God, of submission to his will. That's what the kingdom of God is. And we see it start to burst on the scene at Christmas time. So last week we talked about how Christmas has changed everything and the coming of Jesus has changed everything from the standpoint of uh, it used to be that you felt like you had to earn God's favor, right? Like you can even read parts of the Old Testament and feel like, is that what they were doing? They, you can see people in the Old Testament had misconceptions about God, that you had to do certain things to earn his favor. You had to be righteous enough to earn his favor. You had to follow this checklist enough to earn his favor, that you needed to be good with these sins. These sins aren't too big of a deal, but these sins are a real big deal. And if you don't do these ones, then you earn God's favor. And we learn that, and uh, we see in the Christmas story that no, how we get favor, we don't earn favor, we receive favor from Jesus. That as we trust in Jesus, we don't work for the favor of God, we work from the favor of God. He already has accepted us as we follow Jesus. He's already chosen us, and so we work out of that favor. And we see that in the Christmas story. Christmas changed everything. Now today, what Christmas has changed and what we're gonna talk about is how the powers of this world, the, the worldly mindsets, the worldly ways of thinking, of living life, they have been defeated. They've been disarmed. They, they used to have power over us. We used to be helpless against them, but that is not the case anymore. In fact, in the book of Colossians chapter two, it says precisely that, that Jesus has disarmed the powers of this world. That means you can choose. <laughs> like you, you can actively choose to live a different way. You are free to live out the kingdom of God reality. Now, this kingdom of God reality, it was uh, fully, you heard Rachel say it earlier, right before we took communion, uh, the, the, the cross of Christ, that was his coronation. That was like the, the culmination of the kingdom of God saying, this is what it looks like. It looks like self-sacrifice. It culminated and it ended at Easter, but it started at Christmas. It started at Christmas. Right at Christmas, we already start to see Jesus redefining power. Jesus redefined power from his first cry to his final breath. He turned everything upside down. Let, let me read one more time. Uh, we read this earlier, but I wanna go through it again. This is Matthew chapter two, verses one through six. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About this time, some wise men from Eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. That's where Herod is, right? He's in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel." So Herod the king, he, he's, he's the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, Herod is. Herod is in Jerusalem. And if you're expecting a, a king or a ruler of the Jewish people, you're expecting they're gonna be born in Jerusalem because <laughs> that's it, that's, that is the place. If you wanna talk power, prestige, and authority, all of that resides in Jerusalem. That is the power center. That is the place 
to be. In fact, I mean, look at it. Look at what scripture just told us. That's where King Herod was. And it says that King Herod uh, convened a meeting of leading priests and leading teachers of the religious law. Now, these people didn't have to fly into Jerusalem. They didn't have to catch the red eye from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. They were already there. So the king is in Jerusalem. The leading priests are in Jerusalem. The leading religious leaders are in Jerusalem. They're all there, and he asks, hey, where is this new king gonna be born? And they say, well, not here. Bethlehem, this tiny Little, seemingly insignificant town is where he's gonna be born. And not even in a nice place, right? We, we know he, there wasn't even room in an inn for them. That's where he's gonna be born. And this is how, again, everything in Jesus' story, it's just, it's so mind-blowing whenever you read it with fresh eyes, you start going through and you're going, man, everything is opposite from what you would expect. Every aspect of it is opposite from what you expect. You'd expect the king of the Jews, the, the coming king, the coming Messiah to be born in Jerusalem, the holy city, the, 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 the holy place. That's where he's gonna be born, right? I mean, that's where the temple is. That's where God's presence on earth lives is in holy Jerusalem, right? But guess what? Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was murdered in Jerusalem. They executed him. He wasn't born there. That holy city is the city that killed him. That holy city, the, the one that seems to have everything all together, and we keep all of the religious laws, and man, we follow everything so fine, not like Bethlehem, right? Like we're, we're like the perfect little city. That's the city that as Jesus is riding in in Luke 13 to his final week before he's crucified, he looks at Jerusalem and he doesn't rejoice, he weeps. He says, Jerusalem, you are missing it. This is the moment that your God is visiting you and you can't even recognize me because I don't look like what you think I should look like. You can't even recognize me because you are so in league with the powers of this world that you're expecting something and that's not what I'm gonna be. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm bringing. That's not the kind of power I have. Jesus redefined power from his first cry to his final breath. It never has looked the same again and it never will look the same again. Has anyone ever experienced that before where you, you've experienced something and you've never seen that thing or that place, that person the same way again? Anybody? Yeah, I, I have. Okay, so my, my parents' house, growing up, the basement uh, used to be my bedroom. Like in high school, it was my bedroom. Coolest bedroom ever because it's the whole basement was my bedroom, right? There's, there was a gas fireplace in my bedroom. Like, how cool is that, right? Like, wasn't cool for my dad and the gas bill, but it was cool for me, right? Like, son, you have that fireplace on? No, why do you ask? I don't, there's just heat radiating out of the stairwell. That's why I'm asking, right? Uh, I loved it. I loved that bedroom. But the funny thing is, is as I go to my mom's house now and I go down to that room, because it's not my, it's not a bedroom anymore. Uh, but when I go down there, I don't think of it as like, oh, that was my old bedroom. Like, that's not what I see anymore. When I go down there, what I see and what I visualize is the man cave that I watched the 2016 Game 7 NBA Finals game in, where the Cavs won the first NBA championship or the first championship for Cleveland in 52 years. That's what I see. Yes, amen and hallelujah, right? Like, that's what I see in that room. Because I experienced something crazy that I, honestly, I wasn't sure if I would ever see, right? I, I experienced it in that place. Uh, and so whenever I look in that room now, I don't look and think like, oh, that's where my couch was. Like, I look and I go, oh, that's where I cried uncontrollably like a baby. Uh, you know, like, oh, that's not where my bed was. That's where I was pinching myself going, is this real? Like, is this actually, is this actually happening? Um, and it's all because I experienced something that was so 
formative. I experienced something that was so shaping, it completely redefined the way I saw everything, right? Completely redefined the way I saw everything. Jesus's birth, Jesus's coming at Christmas began the redefinition of power and the redefinition of authority and prestige, and it has never been the same again. It's never been the same again. There's nothing in the world like the world, or there's nothing in the world like the kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. So as the world sees uh, power and prestige and authority, these are the things that you should pursue. Jesus's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is all about sacrifice, humility, and submission to the will of God. That's, that's Jesus's kingdom because that's who Jesus is as king. All of those words embody who Jesus is. Sacrifice, submission to the will of the Father, and humility. Like whatever we sing about, like, oh, meek and mild, little baby Jesus, right? Like Talladega Nights, like a little six pound ounce baby Jesus, like in his little bed. Like that's, that, that Jesus is Jesus. The meek and mild Jesus is who Jesus is. And so often we can try to make Jesus like the Romans did, try to make him in our own image and be like, well, you know, the meek and the mild and the, he doesn't say a word and he, he lets his accusers say things to him and he doesn't say anything back. That Jesus, that's like a costume that Jesus wore for 33 years. That's all that that was. Because actually the real Jesus is like the war horse Jesus. The Jesus who's coming back on the back of a white horse with a sword in his hand. He's gonna kill everybody who disagrees with him and who doesn't do what he wants. He's gonna just overthrow everything. That's the real Jesus. This little meek and mild act, that was just for 33 years. That's not really how it is. But what we see in scripture time and time again is that meek and mild was not a costume that Jesus wore. It's his character. It's, it's who he is. Humility, submission to the will of God, sacrifice. Those are not a little costume that he played for, for a couple of years here on earth. That's who he is. We see in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter one, it tells us that God revealed his fullness in Jesus. So whatever we saw during that 33 years, that's what God looks like. Nothing, that, that is what he looks like. That is his fullness being revealed. Meek and mild was not a costume for Jesus. It's his character. Now let's compare that to what the world sees as power and prestige and authority. Let's compare Jesus and his title to the other major world leader of that time, right? Jesus is some insignificant Jewish baby that's born that no one cares about in this little small town. But let's compare him to uh, the emperor, the emperor of Rome. This dude is the most powerful person in the world. This is what it says in Luke. We actually get a, a... a mention of him in scripture in Luke chapter two, verse one. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. Augustus, he is the emperor of Rome, the most powerful person in the world. And actually right here, Luke is condensing his title. Augustus is like one part. It's the final part of his title. This is the full title of the emperor. Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus. It's a mouthful, right? The only thing missing is assistant to the regional manager or mother of dragons, right? Like that's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> and, and listen to what these words mean, okay? Because each one of these is a separate part of, of the title. So imperator, what that word means, imperator, it literally means dictator, general, commander. <laughs> it means what I say is what goes. What I want to happen is what happens. I am the emperor. 
The second part, Caesar, what that means, it's, it means that he is part of Roman royalty. The first Roman emperor was Julius Caesar. And so by having Caesar as part of his title, he's declaring that he has the proper lineage that would allow him to be the emperor of the Roman Empire. The next part of his title, Divifilius, it means a son of the gods, Son of the God. So he's saying, not only do I have the right via my birth, I have a divine right to be the emperor. I am a son of the gods. And then the last part of his name, Augustus, the last part of his title, uh, it, it means the majestic one. So this is his full title. The commander, a son of Roman royalty, a son of the gods, the majestic one. That's how Augustus is described. That's, that's what the world systems of power look like. That's what power, prestige, and authority looks like. Can I read to you real quick what scripture tells us about Jesus? This is the prophecy of what his title will be. This is Matthew 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the what? The shepherd for my people Israel. Slightly different, right? If you were to sum up what a shepherd's life is, what a shepherd's role is in one word, sacrifice. I'd encourage you to do a little bit of reading about what a shepherd's life in the ancient Near East was like, what, what they would do on a daily basis. Everything they did was not about them. Everything. Everything was for the well-being of the flock. Everything. Whenever I say that they were with their flock day and night, I actually mean every single second of every single day and night they would be with their flock. If they were on duty, they were on duty. Their mission is to protect the flock, to make sure that the flock has the proper nutrients that they need, so they're leading them to pastures where, where there's good grass, there's good things to eat. They're taking them to fresh water sources where they'll be able to get the water that they need. They're constantly on the lookout for bandits and robbers and other animals that would try to take off with one of the sheep. And they would be willing to lay down their life and be killed protecting their flock. Sacrifice. Compare that to the title of Caesar. Compare that to the title of the world leader at this point. One is all about self-praise, self-aggrandizement, self-seeking. The other one is all about self-sacrifice. I'm giving myself up. I'm sacrificed, I'm submitting myself to the Father's will. Jesus is the polar opposite of what the world tells us power is supposed to look like. And here's the thing, Jesus has told us this, that as his followers, we are in the world, but we're not of the world, right? Like we're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And what he means by that is, look, you're, you're in the world. I want you to, to love on the world. I want you to, to seek out people in the world. You're in the world, but I don't want you to operate as if the world's operating system is it, because it's not. I don't want you to operate as if the world's power systems are the way that it works, because it's not. Like that's, that, that is not what I am telling you. That is so antithetical to what I am introducing, the kingdom of God. I have a completely different way of doing things, a completely different way of doing things. And since Jesus has a different way of doing things, and since we're in the world, not of the world, that means we take our cue from him, not from the world, right? Like we, we take our cue from our king, not from our culture. Like we, that's where we get our cue. That's where we get our talking points. That's where we get our ethics. That's where we get our values. That's where we get everything is from our king, right? Um, it makes me think of how just about every time there's a, a presidential election, you'll get in the uh, weeks after it, um, 
you know, this happened when President Biden was elected, it happened whenever President Trump was elected, it happened whenever President Obama was elected. Pretty much ever since we've had social media, it's happened. Someone comes into power, and if you disagree with that person, you see it all over the place, right? Hashtag not my president. You guys seen that? Not my president, not my president, <laughs> right? Like President Trump comes into power, everyone on the left, well, not my president. And then President Biden comes into power, everyone on the right, not my president. Like just letting you know, I don't agree with this person. I didn't vote for this person. Uh, and basically what those people are trying to say, even if it's not the most eloquent thing <laughs> in the world, basically what they're trying to say is that, you know what, th this person, this president, they, they may have been elected but they do not represent my value system. They don't represent what I put weight on. They don't represent what I put value on. They don't represent any of those things. They're, they're not my president. That's what we need to be saying, and that's what we need to be believing about the power systems of this world. What the world is telling us what matters, what we should seek after, what we should look after. Yeah, not, not my kingdom. That's not my kingdom. That may be the way the world looks for things, for, for self-serving, for trying to get ahead any way I can. That may be the world's way of doing things, but I'm not a part of that kingdom. I'm a part of a different kingdom, and my kingdom is all about sacrifice. It's all about humility. It's all about submission to God's will. I love what Pastor Donnie said back during our uh, Easter series. Uh, he, he said, so if Jesus is king, that means Caesar is not, Right? If Jesus is king, Caesar is not. And if Jesus is king, Herod is not. And if Jesus is king, the power systems of this world are not. They are false systems that give a false sense of security and a false sense of power. So that means as followers of Jesus, we need to take our cue from our king and not from our culture. We need to live out the kingdom of God in the way that we talk, in the way that we speak, in the way that we interact with people at work and in our community. We, we need to embody that. We need to take cues from our king. And here's something that's so cool. When we say that Jesus is king, what we're declaring, what that means isn't like, oh yeah, like we're this weird little cult. <laughs> we believe that Jesus is king over just us. What we mean by that is like, no, Jesus is king over everything. Even people who don't uh, like acknowledge his kingship, Jesus is king. He just is. He's, he's Lord. He's redefined everything. And even if the world doesn't know it yet, he has taken the throne. Like he is in power. And we can actually see little, little evidences of that all over the place. That even if the world doesn't acknowledge Jesus as king, they know that something shifted. They know that things have been redefined forever since Jesus entered the scene. Think about it. Everything that Jesus embodies, sacrifice, humility, submission, those were things that in Jesus's time, they didn't get you a, wow, incredible. They got you mocked, they got you ridiculed, and they got you killed. No one looked at what Jesus did, his death on the cross, and was like, wow, well, it's noble. It's no, no, there was no nobility to it. It was humiliating. It was, well, you get what you get, Right? Like that's, that's what he gets, that's what he gets. He's weak, the more powerful people were able to put him on the cross. I mean, hey, it's the way of the world. That's how things were for like literal thousands of years. But think about how things are now. Nowadays, even if our world overwhelmingly doesn't wanna make self-sacrificing choices, even if our world overwhelmingly doesn't submit to God's will, even if our world doesn't overwhelmingly sacrifice, even if that doesn't happen, when the world sees somebody do those things, what do they do? They take note. What used to draw ridicule now garners respect. People look at it and go, holy cow, I can't, 
I can't believe that. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's because Jesus has redefined everything. The world is taking cues from the kingdom of God and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. And we see it begin all the way back at Easter. Let me read to you one more time. This is Matthew 2, 4 through 6. It says this. Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be shepherd from my people Israel. So Jesus is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, right? Like he, he has to be born there. That's what the prophecy says. It's what the, the prophet wrote, that the leader, the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem. So now let's jump ahead to Luke chapter two, verses one through five. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was expecting a child. The world is taking cues from God when they don't even realize it. The world, the, you see right here, Augustus is drawing up this census because he wants something to point to his power and prestige and his authority. He wants more tax revenue coming in. He, he wants this census to happen to say, look how vast and how wide my empire is. Look at how much power and might and authority I have. He's doing things for all the wrong reasons, but this is how God works. In the middle of this, he has no idea that he is setting up the stage for the Savior. He has no idea that his self-serving move of this census is actually setting things up to bring Joseph and Mary exactly where they need to be, Bethlehem, for the birth of Jesus. We're supposed to take cues from our king and even the world when they don't even know it. The power systems of the world, God can subvert them and make them point to him. Augustus had no idea he was setting up the stage for the savior for the arrival of the kingdom of God into our world. And that's exactly what happened at Christmas. That's why Christmas changed everything because we see the story start to play out of Jesus entering our world and changing things Forever. Christmas, Christmas is like the first offensive against the powers of this world. It's the first offensive against people who are self-serving, who are self-seeking, who are looking for power and authority and prestige and might. It's the first offensive against them. So even though uh, uh, everything was accomplished in sin and death and the power systems of this world were defeated uh, at Easter, it all started at Christmas. It all started at Christmas. Christmas was the first offensive on the way of the world. It makes me think of, has anyone ever heard of the Doolittle Raid in World War II, the Doolittle Raid? Yeah, not a lot of people. It's not, it's not one that's uh, uh, like common knowledge. It's talked about a lot, uh, but it's a raid, a counteroffensive that the United States launched against the Japanese and it was uh, early on in, in the conflict after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Not too awful long after that, uh, I believe it was a period of months, there was the Doolittle Raid. The Doolittle Raid, which is so funny because not a lot of people know about it, but if you talk about the Battle of Midway or the Battle of Iwo Jima, a lot more people are like, oh yeah, I've heard of those before. But in actuality, the Doolittle Raid was the turning point. It was the first 
thing that really uh, put a, a hole in the armor of the Japanese. And this is why. The Japanese up until this point had a, a feeling of invincibility. Their people did, people in the government did, because they're this tiny island nation that are separated from their enemy by the Pacific Ocean. We're not talking about technology that we have nowadays. Airplanes are not able to fly that far, right? They're like, you guys can't touch us. You're gonna have to fly ships out here and we can tell because of radar, we'll know you're coming, we'll just bomb you on your way here. Like, you cannot touch us. And so the United States launches this counteroffensive and does just that. They're able to hit mainland China. They're able to hit mainland China. They're able to, to uh, 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 hit different industries and different places there. And here's what's so crazy. They actually didn't like knock out a bunch of airplanes or a bunch of tanks or anything like that. They didn't take out a bunch of soldiers. But just the fact that the mainland had been breached, just the fact that the island had been hit, it shook Japanese confidence. That feeling of invincibility, that feeling of might and power, no one can touch us, was broken. And whenever you read history books, you'll, you'll see things, not just from the outside, you'll see people who were instrumental in the Japanese government who say, yeah, I, I know that the war with the United States would actually last years beyond that point, but man, the Doolittle Raid, that broke us. Like the, the second that happened, we knew we were on a running clock. We knew that we weren't gonna be able to win this war because the feeling of invincibility, feeling of you can't touch us was gone. It was gone. That's what Christmas was to the powers of this world. That's what Christmas was to, to, the, to the idea of, uh, of self-seeking, uh, of self-preservation, to the idea of, of power and might and authority as the world sees it. That's what Christmas was. It was the first offensive that said, hey, we're putting you on notice. You're, we're putting you on notice. You're on borrowed time. Because the kingdom of God is breaking out and once it does, nothing will ever be the same again. And so what we've seen in the years since that, in the years since Jesus was born, we've seen that come to fruition, that people like King Herod eventually had to bend the knee to Jesus. Caesar Augustus eventually had to bend the knee to Jesus. The question is, are we going to willingly bend our knee to Jesus? to his way, because I, I will not sugarcoat this for you. It is not an easy way. It's not. Um, do you know what the world, the, the lie that the world promises us and the lie that the world tells us is that um, it, it sets us up down a path. It says, go this way. And it gives us little jolts of life all along the way. Maybe a relationship we shouldn't have got into, substances we shouldn't get into, stuff like that. And they're just these little shots of life along the way. That's what the world gives us. It's what the enemy gives us but it leads to death. It leads to death. It leads to relational death. It leads to spiritual death. It leads to death, but there's little shots of life along the way that make you feel good, right? The kingdom of God is the polar opposite. <laughs> if you've been a Christian for any time and you're truly, honestly seeking to follow Jesus, you know that the path is littered with little deaths all along the way. Death to self, death to my will, death to my wants, death to certain things that I, I wanted to have happen, but I'm, you know what? I'm picking up my cross daily and I'm following him. There's little deaths all along the way, but it leads to life. It leads to the most fulfilling life you can ever live. And that's the lie of the world trying to tell us that Jesus' way is unfulfilling. But I promise you, and I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up on stage as they do, I promise you that the greatest, <laughs> the greatest gift you can give yourself this Christmas is, is to just give up. Give up trying to do it your way. Give up trying to do it the world's way. Give up trying to do it any way other than Jesus's way. 
We, we see where the world leads us. We see that the power, the prestige, the authority, the, the self-seeking, the self-serving, it never leads where you want it to go. I guarantee you if we could talk to Herod or Augustus today, they would be telling us the same thing. I wish I would have bowed the knee earlier. I wish I would have realized that this is not the way to live earlier. Because we know that as we submit and as we embody the, the nature of Jesus, that's when we find ourselves in the most fulfilling place in life we can be. I wanna read you one last piece of scripture as we get ready to close out today. This is from the book of Philippians. I'm gonna kind of read it in reverse. This is gonna be kind of weird. I'm gonna read you Philippians uh, chapter two, verses nine and 11, and then we're gonna walk back through uh, the, the preceding verses. But this is what it says in Philippians two, nine through 11. Therefore, God elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor. He gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the very first word that I read in this set of verses was therefore. Now, this is Bible College 101. I'll give you a free lesson real quick, okay? <laughs> this is what they tell you. Anytime you're reading inscription, you see the word therefore, look at the verses beforehand to see what it's there for. <laughs> because what's about to be expounded to you has a reason tethered to it. There's a reason behind it. And so what's the reason that God has elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor and given him the name above all names? This is what it says. This is the why. This starts in verse six. Though he was God, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why he humbled himself. Meek, mild, submissive, sacrificial Jesus. And because of that, he has the name that lives on while all the self-seeking uh, people who are just looking for power and might, their, their names are a punchline. And now here's the last part of Philippians 2 I wanna to read to you. It's the first verse of this whole section. This is our call. This is what it says. So you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. His attitude is not something for us to admire and go, wow, whew, good for you. <laughs> he's our king. We take our cue from him. If he's humble, we're humble. If he sacrifices, we sacrifice. If, if he is submissive to the will of God, we are submissive to the will of God because he is our king and we take cues from him. What the world tells us about self-seeking and self-preservation, man, those power systems, they, they lead nowhere. They lead nowhere. They are a false kingdom that lead to a false sense of security. The only true security, the only true fulfillment we ever find is in King Jesus and modeling his life. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the example of Jesus, for what he accomplished through his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And we thank you for the example he is for us. He is our king and we are to model ourselves after him. We're to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same heart as Jesus. 
And God, we know we cannot do that on our own. So what we ask is that you would give us power through your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to embody Jesus in every way that we can so that as we leave this place today, everyone that we encounter will feel like they've had a small encounter with you, that we will be kind like you, that we will be merciful like you, that we will be full of grace and full of truth, that we will love like you love. That's the goal, God. That's why we were here today, to become more like Jesus. Do that for us, God. Help us to become more like our King in everything we do, and we'll give you and you alone all the honor and all the glory. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.